Stories of Communism 14, Losing Your Humanity. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Today we shift our focus to one of the most brutal communist regimes of the 20th century, the Khmer Rouge rule of Cambodia in the 1970s. We'll be learning about this period through the memoir of Chalith O, who was a young teenager when the Khmer Rouge took over and eventually made his way to the United States. He wrote a memoir of his experiences under communism called Spare Them, No Profit, Remove Them, No Loss. As you can guess from the title, the Khmer Rouge basically considered all human lives disposable in the pursuit of the greater good of a fully communist society. Let's take a look at Chalith's story. In April 1975, Charles and his family lived in Badenbang City in Cambodia. His father worked for the American Embassy in Phnom Penh, so the family was mostly prosperous, middle-class, and urban. Life was relatively normal, though there had been some disturbing signs in the city, such as an influx of refugees and skyrocketing prices. When the Khmer Rouge suddenly entered Phnom Penh, Charles' father fled just in time and joined his family in Badenbang, desperately trying to arrange a flight out of the country. He didn't manage to get his family away, however, before the airport was closed, and soon the Khmer Rouge army was marching into the city. As often happens in communist revolutions, many of their new subjects cheered their entry. There had been serious problems with the previous government, and the new rulers promised a new era of peace and justice. Charles' father was not fooled, and quickly got the family to work burning anything that could connect him to the Americans. The next day at school, soldiers escorted all the children into a meeting. Here in this meeting, the Camarouche speaker told us that all the people had to get out of the city and out onto the farms. He outlined the master plan in which all the people in the city had to work on farms to produce rice so that the weapons could be purchased with the rice to defend Cambodia against its enemies. This war will last a long time, the speaker said. Everyone in the country will now be equal. There are no longer any rich. There are no longer any poor. We will all live in equality. This all seemed unreal, crazy, really. I didn't know what to believe. But these speakers were deadly serious. And for the first time, I was hearing the sayings that would become the mantras by which the communist Cameroon controlled the people. While the speaker was talking to us, the teacher on the stage was pointing at certain teachers in the audience that had voiced opinions against the revolution, and these were quietly removed and did not come back. Charles didn't see what happened next to the removed teachers, but from his father's description of the Khmer Rouge's murderous rampage in Phnom Penh, it was pretty clear that they were executed. The next day soldiers arrived at the family home to enforce the evacuation order, the family had to pack up whatever they could carry and leave the city. Since they couldn't take farm animals with them, the neighbors who had animals immediately began slaughtering them. This made it easy to buy and barter for meat before leaving, but of course would have disastrous long-term effects on the food supply, as we'll later see. The family joined a gigantic march of citizens outside the city, escorted by the Khmer Rouge soldiers. The streets were jammed with thousands of stunned, scared people leaving the city, men and women, children getting lost from their parents, even crying babies and toddlers. It was so crowded that we were bumping into each other, and it seemed sometimes as 
if we were hardly moving. Khmer Rouge soldiers were stationed all along the road and at checkpoints, making sure that no one turned back. Everyone had to walk or ride in a single direction. If anyone tried to turn back for any reason, they were shot, sometimes just as an example to scare the people into obedience. Charlotte's family was actually in a somewhat better situation than most of the other urban families being evacuated, in that they were only one generation removed from the agrarian life. His father had grown up on a farm in the area where they were being directed. Thus, they were able to move out onto the farm of his father's sister and her family, and the relatives helped them to build a bamboo hut and learn about living off the land. The accommodations were primitive, but at least it looked for the moment like they could survive. They were in much better shape than the majority of city dwellers, who were confused by the new situation, had no idea how to handle themselves outside the city, and were sleeping in open fields. It was a terrifying change, and when soldiers killed a local man named Cheat, who had been nice to his family, Charles began to fully understand the nature of the new leaders. When the Kemerush succeeded in conquering the country, they held all the power and could take revenge on whoever they wished. This was the first time that the meaning of what revenge could look like became clear to me. I had liked Cheat. He was a nice man, and now he was dead. And remembering this incident, I wonder now if the Kemerush had left his wife and children alive because it was so early in the revolution and the soldiers had not yet become the murderous killers that they would become as the years wore on. Later, nobody connected the targeted victims would survive. If someone was even suspected of being a traitor to Ankar, the Kamaruch murdered the entire family and anyone else suspected of having had ties to the traitor, whether related or not. This began a long period of subsistence living on the farm, where his family tried their best to produce, forage, hunt, or trade for enough food to survive while staying out of the way of the soldiers as much as possible. They were hungry all the time, but managed to stay alive and together, except for the unfortunate death of his youngest sister, Ville, in a farming accident. Of the rice that was produced on the farm, the government confiscated the majority. They were afraid that if anyone had even a little food to spare, they would stock up provisions for a counter-revolutionary army. During the rainy season, things got even harder, but Charleth realized how relatively lucky his family was. Rain fell day to night. It was a difficult time for the family emotionally. We didn't have enough food, not enough medicine, and the place where we slept was not secure enough to keep the water out. The walls of our hut were made of poles and leaves, and when the wind blew and the rains came, the entire interior of our hut became drenched. Sometimes we were so scared, in a panic, really, but we looked at the other people, many of whom slept in the wet fields, the people from the city, and we knew we were more fortunate. Death from exposure and hunger was widespread throughout all of Cambodia, especially among the evacuees from Battambag City, Phnom Penh, and other larger towns and cities. These had been the shopkeepers, the taxi drivers, the teachers, nurses, factory workers, housewives, and all the others who had been born and raised in the city and knew nothing about foraging for food in the country, 
and who had no knowledge at all of planting and harvesting. Many had spent months staying in waterlogged fields in the forest under bushes and trees, competing for shelter and food with thousands of others. Those who survived learned various tricks to gain extra food and supplies to stay alive. For example, they could trap fish and crabs and sometimes catch rats, satisfying their need for meat. But poisonous snakes were a constant danger when poking around holes in animal burrows. The communists didn't produce any shoes, so many went barefoot, but Chalik learned how to make sandals from the tires of abandoned cars. Soon new challenges arrived. The Khmer Rouge soldiers started recruiting village volunteers to join collective work teams. It was clear that if they did not get enough volunteers, the soldiers would be angry, and Chalice knew what the consequences of that would be. So he and a friend agreed to volunteer together. Their first assignment was to help with the harvest in areas where there were not enough villagers to do the job. One day after we had eaten our lunch, I went to visit the village to talk to the people. I asked the villagers, why did you plant the seedlings in the ground but you didn't have enough people to do the harvest? They answered that when they were finished planting, some people moved to other places, and some people died of disease, but others were taken away by Ankar. They didn't know what happened to them. Later, Charlotte's work teams were assigned to even more difficult tasks, such as building dikes, constructing buildings, and removing trees. Even in the hot sun or pouring rain, the soldiers forced the constantly hungry work teams to continue at the assigned pace. As you might guess, this caused the supply of volunteers to dwindle, but the soldiers soon solved that problem by declaring that every single citizen between the ages of 15 and 45 must join the work teams. The requirements to be loyal only to the state became even more draconian. You are the frontline working force. You will eat together, work together, and sleep together. None of you will go back to live with your family ever again. You may be able to go back and see them from time to time, but your group is your family now. Get rid of the enemy that lurks inside you. The old regime taught you to be too individualistic. From now on, you can only be one with your group. Destroy the old way so that you can all be equal under Ankar. We heard this sayings again and again. If anybody was seen to be independent, trying to get more for himself, they would be killed because their behavior was not according to the philosophy of the communist. If anyone was caught stealing, they were taking something just for themselves. And if they were caught, they were killed. No mercy. The same was true about other rules. Amazingly, despite this constant atmosphere of fear, Charleth and some of his workgroup colleagues still retained a spark of defiance and took incredible risks to retain some element of their old lives. At one point, they managed to get an old cassette player working and spent a few minutes listening to tapes of popular music from a few years before. Just as they were enjoying their accomplishment, a local Khmer Rouge guard known for his murderous rages, nicknamed Mo, walked in on them. Fortunately, there were 10 people in Chalith's group and Mo was alone. Afraid for their lives and having nothing to lose, they might possibly have rushed him sacrificing a few lives to seize Moe's gun. After sizing up the situation, Moe decided to accept a bribe of food and let the group off with a warning. But each member of the group was afraid afterwards that Moe would find some other pretext to execute them, and Chalith made an extra effort to volunteer for work assignments outside the village. 
We were scared all the time, all the time. We trusted no one, but still we had to work together and structure groups for the preservations of ourselves as individuals. There was no other way. In the first year, the Kamarouch killed any soldiers from any factions that had fought against them. Then they killed all the family members of those soldiers who had come into the villages. Next, they killed anyone that they thought might start a revolution against them. As the population grew sicker and weaker, the soldiers got angrier and angrier at the lack of production. They tried to hold entire groups accountable when any individual failed to do enough work, but in many cases this was futile. Only two people in a group of ten had shown up to work in the field. The rest stayed home sick, and these two people had to try and complete the work that ten should have done. When they went home at the end of the day, they were killed because their group as a whole had failed to perform. The next day, the rest of the group was still sick, but they had to go out and work anyway. All around us, the situation was deteriorating. Nobody had enough energy, but anchor made them work more and more to meet its deadlines. People died in the rice fields, at the building sites, and walking to and from work. They forced sick people to work. Whole families died, and the dead could not be buried, so they just lay there. We could smell the bodies from a long way away. People were trying to run away, but the soldiers caught them and killed them. People had no more sympathy for the Khmer Rouge or its revolution. All they wanted was food to eat. Charleth continued to labor on the work crews, his youth and vigor enabling him to survive numerous work assignments that were fatal to the weak and starving. He had to get used to the constant hunger and disease, the looming threats from the Khmer Rouge soldiers, and the continuous atmosphere of death all around him. He survived for four years like this, until eventually being felled by a combination of a foot infection and malaria. Luckily, he was previously known as a good worker, so the Khmer Rouge recognized that he was seriously ill and sent him to recover with his parents in the village. By this time, after four years of Khmer Rouge rule, the regime was beginning to deteriorate in the midst of corruption and factional fighting. In addition, war began with the neighboring Vietnam. Incidentally, Vietnamese occupation was not any kind of real deliverance from Khmer Rouge brutality, they were another communist regime and only slightly less brutal, having murdered about one million of their countrymen, as opposed to the Khmer Rouge's two million. But with all this chaos going on, families from the villages were able to go back to their old homes in the cities. Charleth and his family returned to Badenbang, but soon realized that there was no food coming into the city, so there was no real way to survive there long term. Charleth and his family once again packed all the supplies they could carry, and this time headed to the Thai border. It was quite a struggle to get across, but eventually they made it to a refugee camp run by the UN, and his father was able to get in contact with Americans who remembered him from his work in Phnom Penh. Due to this connection, they were able to get accelerated immigration visas, and his family soon began their new life in America. Charleth eventually grew up and became a successful banker. Hopefully this left some of his former Khmer Rouge oppressors spinning in their graves. And now we reach the portion of the podcast where Manuel steps out from behind the microphone, and um, talks about his uh, views on the topic we've been discussing today. So um, what do you think? Eric, I know for a fact that I have heard a lot about how bad the Nazis were, but very little about the Camarouche. And it sounds like they were just as bad, or even worse in some cases. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at percentage of their own population that they killed during peacetime, you know, it, it's hard to compete with the Khmer Rouge in terms of, you know, uh, abuses by governments. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, people say you, you can't compare things to Nazis anymore because everybody compares everything to Nazis. But in, in this case, I think the comparison is accurate when you're talking about regimes that killed millions of people. And are most of these movements gone in Asia? Um, well, you know, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, the thing is, remember that Vietnamese and China are both, they're both ruled by the communist parties, right? The same communist parties that once supported the Khmer Rouge. And, um, you know, nowadays, of course, the, the communist regimes claim to be reformed, but you know, as we'll discuss in other episodes, you know, some question about, you know, how much, how reformed they really are. Well, let's just hope that we don't repeat history. For some reason, we keep repeating history over and over again, and we see the damage that these ideologies have brought onto so many people around the world, and we keep embracing them. Don't know why. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of it, again, is, you know, our education system just... I think if you ask any student who grew up in a, you know, an American high school today, and you ask them, you know, what they know about Cambodia and Vietnam, you know, probably the thing they'll say is, you know, Americans fought immoral wars there, right? And they, Correct. You know, and the immorality of our war as well. You can argue about, you know, what we should have done or how much we should have intervened there, but it was to prevent the kind of, you know, disasters that we discuss in today's podcast, where governments kill millions of their own citizens. Is it really fundamentally evil for the United States to intervene in cases where that's happening or about to happen? Well, it was certainly a good story, and I think uh, most people that haven't heard about the Camarouche will have a different take on the whole uh, history of the Camarouche as being very evil and brutal people. Yeah, yeah, and, and we should also point out that, you know, this is just one example of communist brutality, and as we've seen in other episodes, you know, this brutality happens to some degree or another pretty much everywhere that communists take over. And it seems like individualism is something they hate. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. And that's why it's so important to me to preserve that individualism that we have in the United States or that whatever we have left of, uh, that we we keep it because it's so important that we don't become just groupthink. Yeah, yeah, it is really important to preserve individual rights. And, you know, that's one of the, the key mistakes people make when they're advocating socialist and communist governments. They say, you know, oh, well, look at all the stupid stuff we have in our Constitution, things like the First Amendment, you know, protections of free speech or even Second Amendment rights to self-defense. They'll say, oh, well, that's all people being selfish and thinking for themselves and that everybody should think about the group and that the government should have the power to override these things when it's better for the group. And we see in Cambodia the, the worst case result of what can happen when you take away those individual rights. Well, thank you for bringing this wonderful work. Yeah, thanks, Manuel. If you want to learn more about what it was like to live firsthand under one of the most brutal communist regimes of the 20th century, be sure to check out Charlotte's memoir, Spare Them No Profit, Remove Them No Loss, linked in the show notes. And this has been your story of communism for today. <laughs>